On air, online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Hello, how are you this fine Monday? Lots to talk about. We're going to start the program with some great news and how the growth of the electric vehicle industry is reviving and securing the future of an old Tasmanian nickel mine. Now is the time for nickel. One of the things to know about uh, the nickel that is made at Avebury is that it's battery-grade nickel sulphide. So it's the right sort of nickel to go into electric vehicle batteries. And nickel, of course, is the largest component of an EV battery. And the local community making the most of it with jobs and growth. The whole town was a buzz because it was pretty quiet for quite a while, the little town, and uh, this has definitely boosted things up. I don't know if you know much about the housing and that in Zoom, but it's pretty hard to get a property in here at the moment because people have gobbled them up. We're also going to talk honey bees, and we'll check on a program designed to encourage more women into the beekeeping industry and stay into our second half to see how Tassie's shearers and wool handlers, wool classes, did at the National Champs in Bendigo on the weekend. A top program today. Join the conversation as we dip and dive through a diversity of subjects. Send us a text on 0438 922 936. But first, a mothballed mine on Tasmania's west coast has been given a second life thanks to blossoming global demand for electric vehicles. Avebury Nickel Mine General Manager John Lamb believes the world's hunger for nickel, one of the main ingredients in electric vehicle batteries, means the mine is financially viable at last. Now is the time for nickel. One of the things to know about uh, the nickel that is made at Avebury is that it's battery-grade nickel sulphide. So it's the right sort of nickel to go into electric vehicle batteries. And nickel, of course, is the largest component of an EV battery. I heard Elon Musk say uh, a few weeks ago that they really should be called nickel graphite batteries, not lithium-ion batteries. And, of course, the world is rapidly running down the path of decarbonising Car manufacturers are shifting to electric. There's an enormous demand for nickel and somebody's got to produce it, so it's the right time. Mines boom and and bust. Are you confident that this one is sustainable into the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Obviously, you've got to do what you can to protect yourself. So that's about now, while prices are reasonable and we're, we're starting up, it's about getting systems in place and getting the team in place to make sure that when prices do go through those dips, um, you can pull back in, you can survive through the lean times and then and then go again when, when prices pick up. And, and nickel is one of the, the worst commodities for that. It's, it's very spiky, uh, very volatile price-wise. You've got a shipment at the Port of Burnie waiting to go once it's built up. Is it worrying then to have that sitting there and, and not sold yet at a certain price? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, we're, we're actually um, being prepaid for our product, which, which is nice. Uh, but no, I think... Um, in recent times, because of the growth of, of electric vehicles, we've seen a shift in, in nickel prices, and they used to it used to bounce around that perhaps twelve to fifteen thousand US dollars a ton mark. Now I think you'll see it in that sort of twenty to twenty two or twenty three thousand 
US dollar a tonne mark and, and the shift is because of the demand from electric vehicle manufacturers. Once you've got that first shipment out of the port of Burnie, how, how often are you expecting to be able to ship? It depends a little bit on the shipment size and that depends on the customer. We'll do about 40,000 tonnes of concentrate a year. And How is that on the global scale? Oh look it's a, a fairly tiny percentage I suppose, um, something like um, you know 2% of the of the product that goes into electric vehicles, let alone the product that's produced worldwide. Um, but it's very important for Tasmania, and this is our first and only nickel mine, um, and because we produce the sort of nickel that you can make batteries with, and, and you can't do it with all nickel, at least not easily, because we produce the right sort of nickel, battery-grade nickel, um, it actually matters that it's in Tasmania because we're running on hydroelectric power. If you're going to make electric batteries, electric vehicle batteries with something, you want it to have a low carbon footprint as you go in. Do you have any plans to use electric vehicles here at some point? We certainly do. Um, Avebury is a fairly compact site. Uh, the underground lends itself even to the current generation of battery electric equipment. So we are deep in conversation with manufacturers at the moment to switch ultimately from diesel-powered equipment in the mine to electric vehicles. It's entirely possible uh, here on our site to get rid of all of our Scope 1 and our Scope 2 emissions. Which probably that leads me to my next question. Um, mines at the moment, even on the West Coast, are facing a fair amount of scrutiny and, and public opposition. How do you combat that as opening a, a new mine almost in, in this current climate? Yeah, so look, I think the first thing to say on that is that is that the debate needs to be genuinely joined by both sides. So from uh, the, you know, the opposing you know, green groups, I think there needs to be a realisation that modern society can't exist and survive without mining and minerals. On the other side of the debate, I think miners need to recognise that there are other values there are social values and cultural values and natural values and sometimes they outweigh the value of the mineral products that we're producing. And what we're aiming to do with Avebury is, is give Australia an example of what a modern critical minerals mine should look like. It's neat and it's clean and it's small. We work really hard to keep the footprint tiny. We're putting the waste that we make back down underground as fill in the stopes um, and we're powering it by hydroelectric power. Now I've said often to our workforce here, we aren't going to be the biggest mine. We haven't got the highest grade ore, we haven't got the biggest fleet or the newest equipment. But if we can make this into the, the, the mine that will be the very best any of us have ever worked at, well then we've achieved something. The nickel mine here was started, it was actually started a fair while ago. Tell me a bit about the history of that. Yeah, sure. It was discovered in the late 1990s by CRA. Um, then it was built by a company called Allegiance Mining uh, through the early part of the, the 2000s. Um, it was actually operated very briefly in uh, 2008 by a company called Oz Minerals, which later became MMG, the current owner of the Rosebury Mine. Um, it closed during the GFC and it has never run since. It ran for nine months uh, and then it sat for 13 years waiting for somebody to come along and restart it. And uh, someone's come along and restarted it, obviously. Someone has, yes. Yeah, so the, uh, I guess the more recent history is uh, its, its owner for the last six years uh, ran into financial trouble um, at the back end of 2021 and went through an administration process. Uh, there were 13 bidders, and of those, Mallee Resources, uh, our company, was the successful bidder. 
Um, and um, we arrived on site in, in March, and so in just a little over six months we've gone from nothing to a producing nickel mine. What are some of the challenges in taking on a mine with a history like that? Well, one of them is uh, recruiting. Pretty simply these days, and we hear about the skill shortage, that's, that's true. So we had to build a workforce of... Well, we're, we're at 158 now, so we're heading for a, a full complement of about 200, but to go from nothing to 150 people in just a few months was a, a really challenging exercise, but uh, we've, we've been very successful with that. So that was, that was certainly one of the early challenges. Why did the mine close in the first place? Low nickel prices, global financial crisis. The, the nickel price got down to about US dollars a tonne. Um, they couldn't make it work at the time, and uh, so they closed their doors. Wow, fascinating story, isn't it? Uh, General Manager of the newly reopened Avebury Nickel Mine round there at Zeehan. John Lamb telling reporter Meg Powell he believes the mine's future will ride the wave of the blossoming electric vehicle market. Now let's head underground into the belly of that reinvigorated mine. The Avebury Nickel Mine has started production after 13 years and is just about to export its first load. Meg Powell headed down past Zeehan on the west coast to check it out, but not just down to Zeehan, she headed down. I'm 200 metres underground in the belly of a newly reopened mine on Tasmania's west coast. It's dark and noisy and in front of me there's two men who have been drilling for hours through solid rock digging tunnels to get closer to the treasure they're hunting for, nickel. They've been working here for about a month now, ever since the mine reopened after 13 years in care and maintenance mode. Joseph, that's Meg. How are you? Oh, you're all good, mate. Oh, <laughs> that's your I'll shake, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He doesn't do anything, mate. Right, you got the wrong coloured shirt. Right, yeah, I've already, I've already chipped her about that. <laughs> we'll see him. Well, I'll tell you what, she'll probably come out as clean as you do. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so we're heading um, down the side of the mine, which they call the Avebury side of the mine. There's two sides of the mine at the moment. It's the Avebury and the Viking, right. both potatoes. This is Pippi, not his real name. He manages the workers who go oh, underground. I don't know about Avery, but um, most of the ore bodies are here. I'll, I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> I try and spend as much time as I can down here. This is this is where I like being. This is um, yeah, I like being down with the with the work work groups. So um, I really only go to surface um, by default if I need to go up for meetings or do any um, do anything in the office, basically. But I, I prefer to spend most of my time down on the ground, underground. I'd say that's pretty unusual. Um, I hear that a fair bit from for a mine manager. I spend too much time underground. Some people could say, but um, yeah. I mean, I uh, again, I can remember when I when I started out around some Belty mine. I started as an apprentice, and um, I would have only been 17, 18 then. And I remember going to the portal and watching the miners come out at the end of shift, and thinking that's where I want to be. My family were all miners. My father, my elder brothers were miners. My grandfather was a miner, so it was certainly certainly in the blood, if you like. So, um, yeah, yeah, I said I um, started. Yeah, I'm not swinging a sheet of mesh for visitors here. Not, not in this crap. It's only audio, so long as you understand. Yeah. I'll just close that door, mate. Yeah, thanks. 
Yeah, how about that? We're outside the shafts now, standing at the portal. It's surrounded by dense bush, birds, and in the distance, the sound of the ocean. I didn't expect it to be so peaceful out here. Yeah, it is. Like I said, it's, um, it's a beautiful spot. And I said the footprint of the mine is quite small. It gets a little bit noisy with machines coming in out of the mine from time to time, but apart from that, yeah, it's pretty pristine. Now, Pippi, you were, you're, you're from Zan. Were you born yeah. in Queenstown? Yeah, born in Queenstown. I lived in Zan um, all my life. Give or take uh, a little bit of time away working over the mainland, but uh, mostly in Tasmania and majority of it around uh, Ransom Bell Tin Mine, which I came over uh, to Avery about a year and a half ago from. So for this start-up, the opportunity arose to um, do a restart here, which is pretty important for the community, the community I grew up in, so I um, thought it would be a good challenge to take on. You lived here your whole life and then built a house just as this mine was <laughs> reopening. Yeah, yeah, again, it's more um, from a personal reason. Like I said, the kids are starting to get older. Unfortunately, on the West Coast, as beautiful as it is, education um, uh, doesn't go through to university, so our oldest daughter was starting to travel up to uni, and our second eldest was starting to... She would have had to travel next year as well, um, year 11 and year 12, so um, it was time for for um, family to move up that way to further the kids' education and for me to drive and drive out, unfortunately. I still love, love the West Coast and, and miss it terribly but um, it's just the sacrifices you make when you work in the mine industry sometimes. My name's Dale Colson and I'm a local, I live in Zan and I'm here as a process operator for the Avery Nickel Mine. How long have you lived in Zan for? All my life, I was born here, yeah love the place. Local through and through? That's it, yep. So you started with Avery Mine back before it was Avery Mine? Yeah I started here in 2007, eight or something when it was, it was out here on commissioning, and we helped actually set the place up, ready to operate. I used to be at the Renison mine, on and off over the years. We've every, it used to shut down every now and then. So, and then in between that, a bit of anything. But this is great. Yeah. You set up the Avebury mine back in the 2000s, and then it went into care and maintenance mode, and you stayed on with a few other people. Could you tell me a bit about that time? Yeah, with the care and maintenance situation, our fuels have kept on to finish cleaning up around the place and uh, maintain underground pumps and stuff like that, water, environmental issues, and it's looking really good. It's great to see it happening again. We've been waiting for a while. You must have been getting a bit cynical watching people come and then not do anything. There was a few tyre kickers, yes, uh, so to speak. Why did you stay? That would surely have been quite lonely, I would think. Uh, we did have uh, other people on the shifts with you, with your day and your night shifts, in the care and maintenance mode, and it just flowed on. And in the end, with another company took over, like MMG brought the place, Oz, and Oz Mineral or whatever tangled up with it. Um, there was numerous times saying we will be starting up, and it never ever happened. So, uh, as it turned out, we just was part of the furniture. <laughs> And we're still here. Shuttles and... <laughs> yeah, yeah. For Dale, the mine's reopening is something like a symbol of hope for the declining town he has lived in and loved his whole life. It was good because we knew we were going to be a bit more secure. Um, and the town itself, it was a buzz, as you can imagine. Um, people were asking questions left, right and centre sometimes, you know. It was, uh, <laughs> you, sometimes you try to avoid a few, but... Uh, in the end, when we finally got a bit more confirmation, we could tell them straight out, it's looking really good. Let's start up, we'll be happening. 
And how did uh, people react when you could finally say that? Uh, it, was, it was great. It was great. The whole town was a buzz because it was pretty quiet for quite a while, the little town, and uh, this has definitely boosted things up. It, I don't know if you know much about the housing and that in Zoom, but it's pretty hard to get a property in here at the moment because people have gobbled them up. It's it's all happening, yeah. It must feel quite different, not only here in the mine, but in Zen. Yeah, there's a lot of new faces as people moved into the town. Um, don't know them all, never, never will probably, but it's definitely improved and uh, she's really building up. That way we tend to keep your uh, um, businesses and that alive, your, your other things like your chemists, your medical centres and all them, they tend to stay on board. Whereas, you know, when towns fold, so does all this and then people have got a hassle of travelling and finding alternative um, ways of looking after things. So, no, this is great. It's really building up. And that was minor and lifelong Zian resident, Dale Coulson, ending that report. And you also heard from Pippi, whose real name is Adrian Williams, but his dad called him Pip, Pip Squeak when he was little and it's stuck around ever since. And you can jump online and learn more about that story. Just head over to the ABC Rural site or search ABC and Nickel Mine. We have news addictions. Known as doom scrolling. John O'Hara. For me, Helen Shield, all this week. News is a hugely important part of a healthy democracy, actually being aware of what's happening. I'm talking to Gail McCallum, the editor of Cosmos magazine. But it can lead to chronic stress and anxiety, but it can also activate physiological responses that increase inflammation and decrease immunity. So it can really affect your physical health as well. Your Afternoon with John O'Hara from Half Past One Weekdays on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. You may have noticed them in the garden and out in the paddocks. The honeybees are out. Well, when they get a sunny day. So where do all these honeybees come from? Where do they live? Some of them live with some newly minted beekeeping women that are part of Sister Hives, a community of women beekeepers in Tasmania. Jenny McLeod and Anita Long are the founders of Sister Hives. And I have Jenny McLeod with me now in the studio. Good afternoon, Jenny. Hi, Fiona. How are you? Really good, thank you. Now, you've been going with Sister Hives for a year now. That's correct. We're coming up to the end of our 12-month funding period for Sister Hives, but we're about to enter a new period and start a new uh, program of women coming through Sister Hives. Well, firstly, let's look at the year that you've had. How many women have you had in this group? It's been incredible. You know, we had um, 60 women registered and start beekeeping with us and we've had 40 to 50 consistently stay with us through that 12-month period. So it's been quite outstanding, the participation rates and the retention rates of women who have been so keen to learn about beekeeping. So what have you been doing during the year? It looks like it's been yeah. quite active. I've seen some posts on Facebook. Yep. So it's been a lot about beekeeping, a lot about how to set up a beehive in your backyard, what to look for in for um in 
in the hive, what to how to find a queen. Um, the interesting thing for us has been it's also uh, started a whole bunch of side hustles for women. So a lot of women are starting their own businesses and being very entrepreneurial in how they're approaching beekeeping and having these fantastic ideas about how to make money from, from their beekeeping activities and other related activities as well. So a number of them did want to have a little side hustle. Well, I'm not sure that they did want it, but I think some of them have discovered that along the way. So that's been a very fun part of this project. Fantastic. And you've had experts come in, you've had sort of online sessions, but a lot of in-person sessions as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we had Jessica Locanini come down in August for the Honey Festival. That was the first Honey Festival run, I think, in Tasmania, from what I know. Um, Jess is a honey sommelier. She's been trained in America and in Italy. And she came down and trained our sister hives women in how to taste honey. And out of that, some of those women have become very inspired and they're now looking at how they can become honey sommeliers. Um, Jess also featured at our honey festival and those who attended had the great opportunity to also learn um, how to be a honey sommelier from Jess directly, which was great. Wow. Now you got funding for this program, didn't you? We did. We did get funding for this program. The funding's ended now. So was our... that with government funding or association? Or... Yeah. So it was the um, Tasmanian Government Supporting Women to Succeed initiative. Um, it's been a wonderful kickstarter to introduce women to industry and to be key. Um, so that funding has ended now in December. Um, we're running our next Sister Hives program on December the 10th, which will be at Ripple Farm Regenerative Hub in Richmond. Um, we're inviting everyone to come along. So our Sister Hives participants will be there, but anyone who might be interested in our future programs or wants to learn more about beekeeping, if you identify as a woman, um, are welcome to come along to that event. We've got some big announcements to make there, and one of them is the world record that we've got coming up um, oh, in that January. interesting. Yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, we've been approached by an international world record keeping company. Um, it's not Guinness. It's another company who are run by women. They're a very ethically based company. Um, every woman who participates in the world record will receive a certificate. There, now, there are two world records that are going to be run. One will be on January the 12th. That's a digital world record. So women across the world are encouraged to upload photos of themselves beekeeping. Um, and on that 24-hour period around January the 12th, we'll be posting those photos of women and beekeeping all over the place, which will be very exciting. And then on January the 14th, we're going to be hosting an in-person world record uh, be world beekeeping record at Ripple Farm and we're trying to get as many women to that event as we can. We're aiming for 100 um, and so if you're a woman who keeps um, bees in your backyard or you're a woman in industry, we'd love to see you there. Um, you register online to do the world record. Is it about, will you have 100 hives or what do you have to do to get that record? So we don't need to have 100 hives. We just need to have 100 women there all beekeeping together. So we, we might have 50 hives there where there'll be one or two women around a hive doing it together. But it's a world first and we're super <laughs> excited about it. Um, at the same time on, this, on the world record day, there's going to be a documentary made. So oh, that documentary will be a legacy piece that will tell the story of the the very first women uh, world record keeping uh, beekeeping record that was a little bit confusing but <laughs> yeah yeah oh, it sounds fantastic now I remember when we first spoke about sister mm. hives you said at the start of the program that you were trying to address uh, all the beekeeping issues that stop women from mm. staying on as mm. beekeepers or even starting do you reckon you've done that. I'm taking a deep breath, Fiona. I, I think it's a big thing to do. Um, I think it's been a very big year for both Anita and I. Um, 
I think in anything where you're driving a space forward, there's always going to be challenges. And I think those challenges become very public and very interesting at times. And we've had moments where we've both felt like, why, why are we doing this? But then when we go to our sessions, we see the women and we see what they're getting out of it and that drives us forward. Um, I know it's driven me on days when I've felt very flat and very um, despondent and it, it's raised a lot of very interesting things for us uh, from the perspective that we've now, we're also going to be announcing another uh, new initiative on December the 10th, um, which is about keeping women in the beekeeping industry. Um, I don't want to give too much away here, but we will be setting up an organisation where women with entrepreneurial ideas, women who want to keep beekeeping in a in a friendly space can stay connected and and continue to beekeep. Okay, it sounds yeah. interesting. Well, we'll we'll talk more about that in yeah. the future. Yeah. And just briefly, you're obviously a beekeeper. Yep. Um, and many other things, a cyclist, etc. How's your business going in terms of beekeeping? Interesting. I was just having a chat to you before we came on air and, you know, it's been the most difficult start to a beekeeping season that I've had, I think, in all my years of beekeeping. I know a lot of beekeepers I'm speaking to at the moment are struggling. So if you're out there and you're a beekeeper, um, you're not alone if you're struggling. A lot of us have um, had to feed our bees for the first time just so they don't starve. I know I had my first hive that had starved this year. It was a terrible sight to find. Um, I know there's been quite a lot of European fowl brood in people's hives as well. Um, and it's been throughout southern Tasmania. So we're all we're all uh, having a bit of a tough start to the year. I know some of the sisters in our program, they've, they're keeping their hives in urban backyards um, in Hobart. Their hives are going particularly well, particularly around Newtown. Right. Um, flowers it, are out. Or... It seems to be all those beautiful urban flowers. So mm. if you're anywhere peri-urban um, or, you know, out, out rural, it's a little bit more of a struggle at the moment. Because you're waiting for things to flower. Waiting for the prickly box to come in, which is just starting at South Arm, which is where I'm based. Um, but it, yeah, it's been a tough start. The cool weather, um, the, the rain, it's been keeping the bees in their hives, um, the flowers, you, you know, it's just been a very difficult start. Okay, Jenny McLeod uh, from Sister Hives and Beekeeper, thanks so much for joining the Country Hour. Thank you, Fiona. Time now for the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Fiona. New research conducted by the University of Tasmania's Menzies Institute and Deakin University has revealed tens of thousands of Tasmanians could be experiencing symptoms of long COVID by the end of the year. People are considered to be suffering from long COVID if still symptomatic 12 weeks after infection. Tasmanian Treasurer Michael Ferguson says the government's enthusiasm to deliver on its election commitments led to more than 100 grants being doled out through a secretive process. 111 of the Tasmanian Liberal Party's controversial 2021 election grants to sporting and community organisations were funded through the Treasurer's Reserve, reserved for urgent and unforeseen spending, instead of being debated in Parliament. The federal government will set up a new committee to review social security payments each year. The establishment of the advisory body follows a request by independent Senator David Pocock in return for his support of the government's industrial relations legislation. And Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has apologised to Australians who took out home loans based on his guidance that interest rates were unlikely to rise until 2024. For Bulletin at One. Time to check the latest on the weather with Belinda House at the Bureau. Hi Belinda. Uh, good afternoon. Now, tell me, has there been much rainfall about? 
Yeah, look, we saw showers extend right across the state uh, yesterday. The highest falls were about the uh, the west and the east as it happened. So Lake Margaret uh, in the west picked up 18 millimetres, but on the east, Orford picked up 20 millimetres and Little Swanport picked up 14 millimetres. Since uh, 9 o'clock this morning, though, we've seen showers predominantly about the west and far south, still uh, single-digit rainfall. So far, 8 millimetres at Mount Reed, 5 millimetres at Lake Margaret and 4 millimetres at Zeehan. So those showers that have predominantly been through the west and far south this morning are going to extend right across the state uh, during the afternoon and they will increase in the west. Now, we have got a cold front expected to push across the state this evening, so we're seeing some cold air coming up. So that snow level dropping down to about the 800 metre mark uh, about the west and south late this evening. Reasonably windy today with fresh northwest to westerly wind shifting west to southwesterly in the evening. So rainfall to come today, we're looking at uh, totals of 20 to 30 millimetres about the west and far south. Elsewhere though, only looking at 1 to 5 millimetres, although the higher parts about the northeast may pick up a little more than that. Then on to Tuesday, showers will be uh, about the northeast of the state early, but they will clear during the morning. But showers will linger about the west, south and central areas, easing in the afternoon. That snow down to about the 800 metre mark early morning, but then it will rise fairly, uh, fairly rapidly in the morning with otherwise fine conditions. Now winds will be fresh west to southwesterly, tending west to northwesterly during the day. Now on Wednesday, showers about the west and far south, possibly elsewhere, but the emphasis there is for the west and far south. Winds fresh northwest to westerly, tending west to southwesterly during the, the day and a southerly trend about the east coast in the evening. Then on Thursday, not a whole lot of shower activity around, a bit hit and miss, but it, it could occur anywhere across the state on Thursday. But the trend will be for the showers to clear from the southwest whilst increasing about the northeast. So winds will become southwest turning around to the southeast and becoming variable in the evening. Then on Friday, we're going to see those winds turn around to the northeast in general. So showers about the north with fine conditions elsewhere. Now four day totals are out to midnight Friday. We're looking at a further 15 to 25 millimetres about the west and far south with not much more than one to three millimetres elsewhere. So wet into the west today with follow up rainfall through the next couple of days. Any warnings? Look, we've just issued a sheep grazier's warning for the northwest coast and the southeast forecast districts for this evening and overnight with that cold air coming up as that front comes through. Then conditions will start to settle during the day tomorrow. Out on the waters, we do have a strong wind warning current for all Tasmanian coastal waters today, excluding the lower east coast. Tomorrow, strong winds for all Tasmanian coasts, including the channel. Any more on coastal waters? Yeah, look, so generally today we're looking at uh, northwest to westerly winds, uh, picking up to 20 to 30 knots about the west, south and across the north and the northeast. Those winds will shift around west to southwesterly, 20 to 30 knots in the evening. So the swell, there's a reasonable amount of swell out there at present. The west coast uh, buoy sitting up around about five metres with a maximum height of eight metres coming in from the southwest. Wow. On the other side of the state, uh, sitting around in Mariah Island, the swell sitting around one metre, maximum height about one and a half metres coming in from the southwest. So that's about where the swell's going to sit today. So the western and southern coast, that west to southwesterly swell, four to five metres. Across the north, a westerly swell, one to two metres. And in the east, a south to southwesterly swell of one to one and a half metres, although picking up to three metres offshore in the south. Belinda House, thanks very much. Thank you.
Now, the nation's best shearers and wool handlers competed to be the best in Australia in Bendigo on the weekend. But just getting there was the challenge for many. The New South Wales team dodged floodwaters and came by boat, car and even helicopter to make it to the competition on time. Georgie Rangahayatia, wool handling manager, explains how they got there. Oh, absolutely, like, quite stressful for all my wool handling team. I had a novice wool handler that travelled from Geraldry. Usually takes about, um, you know, probably about four hours or so to go all the way to Gill. They had to go a nine-hour trip right around Orange, come up through that way. Uh, she was saying it costs over $900 in fuel, and, she, and that's one way, and she couldn't make it to the Nationals. You know, it was really sad because she's a, she was a senior wool handler. As for one of my other novice wool handlers, Char- uh, Charlie Baker, he's actually from Inverell and they had to fly him. When he rang me, he says, um, Georgie, we've just been flying in by chopper onto one of the properties in Weewool and I'm not sure if I can make it. And it's, it's, it's all right, mate, you know. You just let me know when they fly you out. So that was a week later, I think, they flew him out back to Inverell and they were flying shearers and shearing teams all out on choppers to properties help farmers. For animal welfare issues. Absolutely. So the stress of it all is really like um, with wool handlers they're not on you know good wages for an example compared to shearers and at that time we've had um, issues just because of the rain so when the shearers are not working the wool handlers don't get paid. Um, oh, two of my wool judges come from Forbes, and that was a struggle because one was stuck on an island, well, sort of an island in Forbes. Other one, they just couldn't, they were isolated from parts. And most of our workers are about 40 k's on the other side of Forbes to West Wyland. So for us, it usually takes about two and a half hours to from Dubbo down to a couple of the properties, Yarraville and Kui. It took us probably about six hours going right around Molong, you know, probably about a couple of days before the flood. And then Canoundra. We couldn't go through Gugara because what happened. So we went uh, through Canoundra, which just had the flood, then Cowra, then back to Greenfield and right around the back track, Wainri, uh, um, back onto the new highway because the road, as you know, from West Boilon to sort of halfway, that's washed away. Well, now, from Forbes to West Boilon, new uh, roads just totally washed away. So to get competitors here, you've had chopper flights, you've had huge detours, you've got people who are literally getting out of islands um, due to being surrounded by floodwaters, all to, to come and compete. That's extraordinary. And, you know... Really, these guys had no work for three weeks. They lost their whole income. Uh, so, you know, I was going to fly down to, um, from Dubbo to Bendigo or, or Wagga to Bendigo. But in the end, um, I had problems with the car. My car drew to mud driving and muddy and, you know, ripping my sump or not sump, uh, splash cover. And, and then tyres, 
you name it, <laughs> potholes, giant potholes. So it's what we do, but in the end, we just sort of pulled them together, knowing their finances are tight, and says like, okay, we'll just feed each other and, and look after each other that way, or accommodation. You know, it's, it's uh, pretty hard. There's some really good points that you raised there too, George. The idea that... Um a lot of people see shortages in shearing and, like, you think, oh, everyone's making a fortune in this industry. It's, like, you need the work to keep happening and, and wool handlers aren't being paid extraordinary amounts of money as well, so they're going to want to keep working even when all of this weather is, is meaning it's almost impossible to get around. Absolutely correct there. Um, the saddest thing is, is that, you know, there's a struggle of shortage wool handlers you know, it's great that the shearers are looked after you know and they're doing really well they you know shearing a lot of good sheep out there but there's some you know rough ones out there as well but for the wool handlers especially experienced ones you know um i believe that they should be paid more and they'll come they'll come back to work you know they'll come out of retirement they have to you just pay it and they'll come in it's such a blessing as a wool classer to have them, you know, come in and they're so happy. You can't um, burn out your good staff. That's what's been happening. Mm. They think, oh, yeah, experienced wool handler, she can handle four by herself or two for four. It's ridiculous. And you've got to have the numbers. If you're, you're good, you almost get punished because you, you're given more, more work even at the same age. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can't, you can't burn out staff and that's wool handlers. Wool handlers are the lifelong to the farmer's income. Without good wool handlers, who's going to skirt and uh, present that wool at a world market? He, you know, the farmers rely on the wool handlers. To make them look their best. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's all about the income check, of course, and, and without that, more stress on the farmers. And that was an interview from Bendigo on the weekend where the nation's best shearers and wool handlers competed to be the best in Australia. There was also a pretty good-sized Tassie team in Bendigo as well. Patrice Leckie travelled with the team and competed in wool handling or classing. Good afternoon, Patrice. Thanks for joining the Country Hour. Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me. So tell me, first off, how was the experience for you? Uh, it was amazing. It's always... um. It was so great to go over there and represent Tasmania. Um, it was my first time in the open, representing Tassie in the open wool handling. Um, yeah, I think Tasmania had a had a great weekend. We really did our proud, state proud, I think. So for the uninitiated, tell us what you do when you compete in wool handling. Uh, so wool handlers, we usually get a pace shearer. Um, the shearers shear along together, but sometimes we have to go with the shearers. But our job is to throw the fleeces as flat as possible on the table and separate all the ornaments um, completely into different boxes. So there was about eight lines, I think, of ornaments. We have so all pieces. different types of sort of um, types of wool being really clean and high quality or broken yeah, or whatever correct. into different boxes. Yeah, so kind of like what we do in the shed, but um, at a little bit of a speedier pace, and it has like it has to be very very precise because any bit of wool that you put in 
the wrong bucket you um, accumulate points for and you want the lowest score. And were you with a pretty pacey shearer? Uh, so all of the open wool handlers, we all got um, pace shearers. So, so they, fast shearers? Uh, no, so they she, they have to shear the sheep in a certain amount of time. I think it was two minutes maybe um, to make it even so there wasn't one shearer faster than the other. Okay. Um, yeah. So you're all on a level playing field. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So how did you go? Uh, personally, um, I went... Are not so good out the front. So we get out the front scores and out the back scores, which is all your ornament buckets, all your different type of wool buckets. Um, but out the back, I went pretty well. Um, yeah, I went, what was I at nationals? I'm not sure. Okay. Well, End you were the there. Field a little bit, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you were there, and that's the main thing. Now, you went over with a team of other uh, wool handlers and shearers. How did the Tassie team go as far as you, you saw? Uh, really, really well. Um, I was so proud of, yeah, everyone that went. Our um, youngest open shearer, Sam Byers, he um, qualified fourth into the finals and he actually placed fifth in the um, national open shearing. So that was pretty amazing. Um, our intermediate shearer, Isaac Palmer, he got second. And um, our novice shearer, Sam Kemp, he placed sixth. Our senior wool handler, Amelia Byers, placed third. And our novice wool handler, Ruby Graham, placed sixth. And our Tassie, Tasmanian team, so that um, apprised of our top two open shearers, which were Robbie Glover and Steve Rigby, and our top two open woolies, which were Kelly Hazel and Jess Watley. So together they competed as a team against the other states. And um, they won the teams event. So oh, wow. that was That's really fantastic. good. Wow. Yeah. So, so everybody, some really good top quality competition there by the sounds of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the best from each state all get over there. So it's always really great just to see everyone again, really. It sounded like, <laughs> yeah, it sounded like a good atmosphere. Um was uh, everyone pretty pumped up or, or you heard the, the person before, there's a few few difficulties getting there and a few worries in the industry? Yeah, yeah, that's it. No, we were all um, in good spirits, I think, happy to be there, very um, grateful for all the people behind the scenes and the Bendigo Agricultural um, Show Society for getting it up and going and after the postponement. It's, um, yeah, hats off to them. They did a great... They, it was a great, you know, few days that they got together in the end. And how are you uh, doing some wool classing at the moment? Or uh, At the moment, personally, I'm not classing too much. I've been doing, um, I'm a wool handling trainer as well, and I've mainly been doing um, a little bit of training around in the sheds. Um, and if I'm not training, I'm just doing a bit of wool handling. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining the Country Hour, Patrice Leckie. Um, congratulations to the Tasmanian team of wool handlers and shearers that competed there in Bendigo. Yeah, thank you very much. We will. I will just give a shout-out. We also had... Um, the, the judges go over as well. We had um, three shearing and three wool handling judges and they did a fantastic job um, out the back for over the two days all the time. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. 
Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour. You're with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. If you're a fan of mangoes, you've probably noticed the increasing number of varieties for sale. It's amongst well-known varieties such as Kensington Pride, R2E2 and Calypso is a new way of varieties with different colours and flavours. Perfection Fresh is rolling out the Scarlet Delight and the Hula varieties, which are currently grown on farms in northern the Northern Territory and far north Queensland. CEO Michael Simonetta spoke to Matt Brand about the varieties which originate from Israel. There are two new varieties that we've been uh, trialling now for a number of years. This journey started 10 or 12 years ago when we imported the original rootstock from Israel. They're bred in Israel. Uh, And we've trialled them now in the Northern Territory and in North Queensland, up in the Atherton Tablelands. And we've been very encouraged by how they've performed over the course of the last five to seven, eight years now since we first started seeing some fruit. So we've had, this is our second year now of semi-commercial production. We're still two to three years away um, of, of being in full commercial production of these varieties. But we're certainly encouraged so far by how they're performing agronomically and also how they're being received by customers, retail customers and consumers alike. For our radio audience, is it easy to explain what these varieties look, taste like, what makes them unique? Yeah, the Scarlet Delight is probably the most distinctive of the two because it's got that deep red scarlet skin colour. Um, which is much deeper than what we traditionally know in in mangoes in Australia of any of the uh, any of the traditional varieties Australian varieties. So it's it's got a much deeper red scarlet colour and its flesh is darker than um, even a Kensington Pride or a Calypso mango. Uh, and the scarlet, I describe it as har- having an aromatic flavour and a mixture of. I taste a mixture of like peach and nectarine hints uh, in the flavour. Hula, I can, I always describe it as a Kensington Pride lookalike. It has a different flavour profile to Kensington Pride, even though it's more, it's it's um, it's a more traditional mango flavour, but it's uh, it, it's uh, it's it's not quite as sweet as Scarlet Delight, but uh, certainly a a, a very pleasant flavour. Its major attributes are that. It, uh, it's, it's got great shelf life, uh, and with both of these varieties, they're ready to consume before they're, before they're soft. So they are ready to, if they yield to slightly to pressure in, in the palm of your hand, if they yield slightly to pressure, uh, with, with slight pressure, they're ready to eat. So you should not wait for these mangoes to go soft before, that, before you eat them. And... These two varieties, what sort of season has it been like for them in 2022? All mangoes are later this year. So the whole season is a couple of weeks late because of the, uh, the colder than average temperatures and the rain that we've had. So uh, every, nobody's been exempt from the rain, obviously higher in some places than others. But the season is running two weeks later. 
than last year. So um, the typical window for these varieties are Scarlet Delight will start earlier. It's an earlier maturing variety. So in the future, it'll start around the first week of October. And then Hula will start uh, harvesting probably the first week in November. And they'll go through till early to mid-January, maybe into mid-February is, uh, is the window for them. So at the moment, as you said, they're semi-commercial. So d does that mean people might see them in their supermarket shelves? Yeah, they'll be in some selected supermarkets and some independent retailers and independent supermarkets. There's not a great, there's not a huge volume of them this year, but they're out there. And as each year goes by now, you'll see more and more of them. And for your company, what does the rollout plan look like? from here on in terms of more production? We've got a plan to um, ramp up production for both varieties over the course of the next five years. And uh, it'll be predominantly fruit that'll be grown in the Northern Territory and in the Atherton Tablelands. We, are, we haven't begun trials anywhere further south yet, like say in Bundaberg or um, some of the Southern regions, but we will in the future. So. You know, we we plan to uh, we plan to have um, a, a significant number of trees planted uh, so that they'll be readily available to all Australian consumers and provide a, a bit of a, a bit of differentiation, a bit of excitement, and just uh, different flavour profiles for the mango-loving Australian consumers. And that was Michael Simonetta, the CEO of Perfection Fresh. And you can read more about the new wave of mangoes on our website now if you search for ABC Rural and Mangoes. You can actually see a couple of photos as well and um, absolutely yummy. The Scarlet Delight looks absolutely beautiful. Um, now, whilst a third La Nina season has brought widespread rain and flooding across parts of Australia, in the north, some places have continued to miss out. Lucy Cooper filed this report. Travelling along the Flinders Highway between Townsville and Mount Isa, you notice the road is very straight, flat and long. But also, the landscape changes suddenly, from drought-ridden paddocks to flourishing pastures. It all comes down to the hit-and-miss nature of rainfall in the northwest, which senior meteorologist with the Bureau of Meteorology, Steve Hadley, says is just part and parcel of the region. A lot of Northern Australia has quite a, a variable rainfall pattern through the year. So um, you get, you know, some wetter years and some drier years and in, you know, across the, um, the tropical north of Australia, you know, so it is often a patchwork of, of rainfall where you get these uh, smaller rainfall cells um, which happen in some areas and miss other areas. And then you'll get the um, odd, bigger, larger system that will sweep through and produce uh, a heavier sort of look to the rainfall um, through uh, a broader swath of the north, uh, but maybe missing entirely other places. So that's the kind of um, nature of the rainfall that we deal with in northern Australia most years. The shires of Flinders and Cloncurry are not drought declared, whilst nestled in between them, the McKinley and Richmond shires are. 40.9% of Queensland remains drought declared, and graziers in the northwest of the state are still waiting on rain. Thea Harrington of Werriner Station, north of Julia Creek, says in the 10 years she has lived in the northwest, 
she has yet to see a normal season. Everybody talks about a normal year um, and in the 10 years that I've been here, no one's described it as normal. Um, we've had everything from super dry years like 2013 and then the our total opposite extreme in 2019 um, and... I don't know what normal is in the 10 years that I've been in the northwest. Ruth Chaplin lives 30 kilometres outside of Cloncurry on Weinberg Station, a family-owned and operated cattle property. She says until this past week, it was shaping up to be a very dry 2022. Up until 48 hours ago, we had really had anything. I mean, we were really starting to look down um, the barrel of a very dry 2022 and we were starting to have a little bit of a sick feeling I suppose. Um, we did get about 39 mil the other day and it was very welcome and we've kind of taken a breath but it's been very patchy at the same time like even across our place we not all of it has been wet at all. Thea says it's just part of living in the region. We have two gauges um, one here one at our house and one 5k down the road at the bottom of our driveway and they can have two vastly different falls. Um, we are in a little pocket um, between the Flinders Highway and the Wills Developmental Road um, that I would describe that has missed out in the last couple of years. Um, there are not a lot of cattle running in those paddocks at the moment. Um, it's probably too early to comment on what this season's going to be like, um, but I think it's going to take some very consistent moisture to rebuild the soil moisture and bring back the pasture. And Ruth Chaplin agrees. It's very hit and miss. Like Some people have had decent rain, but... A large majority haven't, and the rain that they've had has been storms. So, you know, it varies across places, across areas, across districts, yeah. Steve Hadley from the Bureau says it's not just the weather that impacts drought, but also the landscapes. There's a lot of things that influence uh, drought in the landscape, and one of those things, you know, is the landscape and, uh, you know, the way it reacts and takes the rainfall. Um and so the, the weather factors involved are, you know, potentially the, the small-scale nature of some of the, uh, the thunderstorm systems that come through um, north Queensland. And, uh, you know, they can affect one uh, part of the region but not another. And in some, you know, respects, some of the smaller-scale systems that you get, um, you know, they can affect, you know, um, you know, even smaller parts of the district um, rather than, you know, affecting a whole swath of uh, the uh, the north of the state. Ruth Chaplin says she just wishes some of the rain would come her way. It'd be nice to take some of the the wet off the people down south, but unfortunately we, we just can't do that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I guess, we're kind of used to it. Like, it's not one of those things that you, you can plan for to some extent anyway, but it's, it's quite stressful when you have no control. As for the future... Well, for many on the land, it comes down to hope and luck. I personally like to stay positive and I think maybe we, we will see a bit more rain, um, but you really can't hold on to that either. You've sort of got to plan for both options and at the moment um, it could go either way. So it's certainly not we're, not, we're certainly not expecting it to be a very big wet, but at the same time let's, we're just hoping for something um, average. Yeah, and it compares well to the... I mean, we've been in drought for since 2012-13. So, yeah, let's hope it's better than those years. And that was Ruth Chaplin, who lives on Winberg Station, a family-owned station-operated cattle property outside of Cloncurry.
finishing that report from Lucy Cooper. And if you get a chance, have a look at that story, which is also on the ABC Rural website. Thank you for joining me today. Tony Briscoe will be back tomorrow at noon. Sport. It's good to get a game plan together and actually execute it. Science. We have such strong levels of public trust and respect for science. Health. We're recognising the nurses that have put in the hard yards. Choose your news from ABC Radio Hobart. abc.net.au slash Hobart.